Take your Bible, if you would, and join me tonight in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter number 14. Years ago, and I don't know that, um, of course, there's a, a large demographic of, of, you know, college students in this campus church service, but there is also, of course, you know, sometimes I think college students think that they are the only or the primary attenders, but there are are hundreds and hundreds of people that are here that would say, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that back in the day. So for those of you that are not college students, now maybe some of you college students, you would get this, but back in the day, if you watched an old sci-fi movie, you would have some Martian coming, you know, and he's got little antennas coming out of his head. And then he's going to say, there is a statement that was synonymous with the Martian. Okay, and this is what you just knew the, the Martian was going to say to the humans um, when he saw them. And, and maybe, you know, maybe you're a college student of great insight and mental acuity and you'd say, I already know what you're going to say. And the statement was, now some of you are nodding in affirmation, so like I know what you're supposed to say to the question that the alien would ask, the Martian. I don't really believe in Martians, but if there were, this is what they were going to ask. So how many of you know, what, what is the Martian going to say? What are they gonna say? So let's see, Nathan, what's the Martian gonna say? Take me to your leader. Yeah, that's exactly it. He's going to say, take me to a Starbucks. No, that's not what he's saying, okay. <laughs> the Martian is going to say, take me to your leader. Now again, this is somewhat of a cultural, generational thing, but back in the day, and I'm saying back in the, the 50s and 60s, there was a sense that that question made sense. And I'm not so certain that it makes as much sense today as it may have back then. Because if, if the Martian came and said, you know, today, take me to your leader, we might look at them and say, what are you talking about? You're talking to my leader. In other words, nobody, nobody tells me what to do. If you're asking to be taken to my leader, then that ends right here. We live in a world today where we're being fed this idea that the world truly should rotate around us. So my desire, my preferences, my leanings, my whims, my whatever. We, we often talk about this Judeo-Christian founding. We really are a nation as far as the, the, the place where we are right now. We're in the United States of America. We're not exclusive to this, but we were clearly demonstrating this. That is, we had a founding that was based on eternal principles principles that were bigger than the individual. We were called a melting pot of nations where, where people came around something bigger than the individual. Today, it seems as if we're continually being fed this line of reasoning that says the individual is the end of all things. In other words, whatever it is that you want as your reality, that is yours to decide but it runs contrary to the thought of scripture. It really, to be quite blunt, it, is, um, it, it doesn't fit with 
what we call biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says there has to always be someone that gets to tell us what to do. Israel was faced with a challenge, of course, and, and they're on the battlefield, but they were immobilized. And, and, you know, Goliath the giant was taunting the people of Israel. And Israel's, they're just, they're, they're frozen in fear. So nobody's going out. Of course, young David comes and he asks an honest question. And it's a good question. In fact, it must have stung when David said it. It's in 1 Samuel 17, 29, and here's the statement. David said, is there not a cause? In other words, isn't there something bigger than any one of us? It's almost as if David is looking at the people that are gathered and the the host of the Philistines, the valley of Elah lay in between. and, and, And here they are, Goliath comes out and he begins to defy the name of the living God, the God of Israel. And David standing here listening to this Philistine defy his God. And David says, isn't there something more important than any one of us? Why hasn't someone gone and fought the Philistine? Is there not a cause? And the answer was a resounding silent, well, yes, there is. So today, for people like us, isn't there a cause bigger than the individual, or am I the ultimate cause? I read of one missionary who was a statesman for the cause of missions, and he observed some irony regarding our commitment today, understanding a cause that is bigger than the individual. And he said it this way, and there is a sting to this as well. He said, while third world Christians are resource poor, they are commitment rich. And many Western Christians are resource rich and commitment poor. And I know we can't generalize everyone, so please forgive that. I know it is a mass generalization. It's not true of everyone in a third world country, nor is it true of everyone in a Western nation. But it does appear that there may be some uncomfortable truth in his statement. Is there not a cause? Your Bibles are open right now to Luke chapter 14. Let's begin reading in verse 25. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. And here the Bible says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, the same cross that the college choir sang of tonight, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The title of the message tonight is, He Cannot Be My Disciple. Father, I'm asking over the next few moments that you might fill our minds with your thoughts. Lord, that does mean that our thoughts have to be captivated first by you. I know there are many distractions and I know many things pull for our attention. They vie for that. 
Help us to submit ourselves, first of all, to the attention to your word and what it may have for us individually. We offer this to you, praying these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we start to think about these these direct statements offered by Jesus, he, this person, cannot be my disciple. We start to notice the strange way that Jesus appears to address those that are following him. Now, the, the, the visual scene that I get is Jesus is walking and then the Bible says in our text where we just looked, there were great multitudes with him. So it's almost as if his back is to them and they're at some distance following after him. And then Jesus pauses, he turns and he says these jarring things to those people who are coming after him. Whenever Jesus addressed the matter of commitment, he has never glossed over the cost. He let you know in no uncertain terms, right up front, what is this going to entail? Um, how many of you have ever bought a uh, airline ticket from a discount airline before? How many of you have ever done that? Have you ever been just shocked, like you see these um, ridiculous rates to fly from point A to point B, and like you can fly for $39, you know what I mean? And then you say, yeah, I buy the ticket, and then you say like, okay, I, I bought a window seat, uh, but you have to upgrade to actually have it inside the aircraft. Um, you know, it's like, is anything included? And they say, yes, water is free. And you say, wonderful. And they say, but you have to pay for the cup. You know, it's all those kinds of like, wow, I mean, I, seriously, you have to do it. They get you with the like, oh, hey, it's $39. But by the time you're done, it's, you know, 375. It's not how Jesus works. When he calls us to be a follower of him, he lays out in, again, no uncertain terms, these are the agreements. This is the cost, and I want you to know just right up front what it's going to involve. The story that Luke presents just prior to our text is one of a banquet to which all are invited. And it really is a beautiful picture because he says, all right, listen, I, I'm inviting you to come and sit down at the table and, and you all are invited to come. In fact, when he talks about coming into the banquet, J Jesus says, go out into the highways and hedges and just compel them to come in. I, I think there is this beautiful picture of like, wow, I, I can come and, and, and sit at the table. I can, I can know Jesus. But there also appears to be something beyond simply being what we might call a follower of him. Because many were following him, but now he's, he's making a distinction between come sit at my table, uh, come, come participate in this meal, come and know me personally, come and be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. But now he seems to make another level of commitment to say, all right, now you're a follower of me. But are you willing to be a disciple? In Jesus' day, a disciple would be much like an apprentice. The student was able to choose the rabbi much like a student might choose a college or a university or even a teacher or a professor. So Jesus was saying, if you choose me as your rabbi, this is what it's going to entail. He, he's giving you the syllabus right up front. 
It's not like you go into the class and then it's like, oh, I, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Jesus says, no, listen, before you sign up, I want you to know this is what it's going to take if I am your rabbi. Jesus is not saying that discipleship to me is simply learning the way of life and passing it on or adopting a philosophical position, having it impact maybe your behavior. Instead, he is saying discipleship is a call to intimate fellowship with Jesus that demands obedience to him. He really is, in all fairness, laying out the terms of discipleship. Again, we're not talking about just being a follower, but rather a disciple. There are many followers, but not many disciples. In his commentary on the book of Luke, a man named William Barclay relays this story regarding the idea of a disciple, a learner. He wrote in his book, once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger man. And he said to this scholar, so so-and-so tells me that he is one of your students. And the teacher answered devastatingly, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There's a world of difference between attending the lectures and truly being a student. It is one of, supreme, it is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in church there are many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. Even in Matthew 26, verse number 58, at a crucially... Uh, important time in the apostle Peter's life. The Bible says, but Peter followed him afar off. So the question we ask tonight is what kind of commitment is Christ asking for? If he's laying out the details of following him, what does that actually look like? The first thing that I notice in this passage is that there is a commitment that prevails over people. This is a commitment now that is going to be costly and he wants to lay it out. It may cost you this. And so it's a commitment that has to prevail over people. Again, Luke 14 from our text, verse 26, the Bible says, if any man come to me and, now listen to these terms, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now this is strong terminology and sometimes we stumble on the terms with which Christ is laying out this matter of discipleship. We say, wow, he's, he just said, so you're talking about family hatred and we're not talking about, you know, this, this bitter hate, like I hate my father. My dad did this and this and this and I have no problem doing what Jesus said to do because I hate my I hate my mother, I hate my brother, I hate my sister. Then we even get to the point where it says, I have this self-hatred. Is that what Jesus is calling us to? I, I have this, this hatred of myself, I hate myself. This seems contradictory to everything we know about Scripture. So what is it that he's asking us? The word hate here does not mean this ill will toward. These are the vital relationships of life. 
What Jesus begins to do here is to frame in our minds this matter of comparison. Let's look at scripture with scripture to give some context for this love-hate dichotomy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse number 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now we start to get some sense of, okay, so, so it is as if if it comes down to, I am either going to follow Christ or follow family. There's no question. Jesus, I love you more. And I know what this may cost. You know, we talked about third world countries before and I've never faced this. I am grateful for it. But I have seen in third world countries before the cost of a person saying, I am becoming a follower of Jesus. We were in Cambodia at one time and and we're in Cambodia and we were, we were back in the jungles of Cambodia. We were, we were back where it just was amazingly challenging. We're, we're preaching in these huts and we, we spent evenings, we spent, spent the night on, on somebody's bamboo thatch porch. And as we're preaching in these churches and people are trusting Christ and then they're preparing to actually make this public acknowledgement of their personal decision. Here's what they do. They, they had this old tractor and it had this flatbed kind of rough trailer on the back. And people would then sit on the trailer and then they would take this and everybody knows exactly in town, in the village, what's gonna happen. They're sitting there and they take this through the middle of town they're making this public declaration to everyone. You know, we might sing with, with some fondness and some nostalgia, go down to the river to pray. Listen, when they're going down to the river, we, 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 we go down into this river in Cambodia, the Mekong River. And, and there these people make this public profession of their personal decision to be a Christ follower. And it is oftentimes extremely costly. That they understand the reality of, whew, wow. If I make this public decision to be a disciple of Jesus, I am following him at the expense of the relationship with my family. When, when we were just most recently in Israel, one of our, our guides, in fact, the driver that, that drove us around while we were there, his relationship with his family and even with his wife is woefully fractured because he has become a public follower, disciple of Jesus Christ. They understand, like, oh, wow. Whew, there is a cause this cause is bigger than me. Okay, Jesus, I will follow you because you are worth more than anything that I must turn my back upon. What he starts out with is this is a commitment that prevails over people. What he's doing is he's saying, I don't want you to have a heart that's going to be continually pulled in one direction or the other. Okay, so who are you going to follow? Well, can't we kind of, can't we make an agreement? Can't we have an arrangement? Jesus, I want to be your disciple, but let's come to terms about this. And Jesus says, I've already laid out the terms. I've already presented them. 
Those are the terms. What is he keeping us from? The psalmist acknowledges it this way and he actually offers this prayer to God. In Psalm chapter 86 verse 11, he says, teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. We, we oftentimes sing the chorus, an undivided heart, seeking only you. What the psalmist is saying is, Lord, I wanna walk in your way. I wanna walk in your truth. I don't wanna have these, these, these multiple paths. Lord, I want this singularity of my focus. So unite my heart. Because if I have a heart that's pulling me here towards my family, here towards my friends, here towards acceptance, here towards prosperity, here towards whatever, here towards me, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to get. He says, listen, then you can't be my disciple. You may have come and sit at my table and dined, but there is another thing to which you are being called. And that is discipleship. And, and if your heart is pulled like this way and this way, he says, you, well, you can't be my disciple. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 8, we understand this doesn't mean I'm going to forsake my family. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, is worse than an infidel. Is Jesus saying, you have to treat your family, forgive the bluntness of this, but you have to treat your family like trash. That's inconsistent with Christianity. But you do have to treat your family as not in the same place as Jesus. So now, listen, if I don't take care of my family, honor your father and your mother. Listen, this is the first commandment with promise. We don't think there is, we, not we don't think, we know there is no inconsistency in scripture. So he's not calling us to treat our family as if they are nothing. He's saying, listen, you treat me as if I am everything. And then I would submit to you, we'll treat our friends, our family, even ourselves, in a way that truly honors God. So what is he saying? Commitment that prevails over people. Then he goes a little bit further. He says, commitment that is my prevailing priority. Okay, it's not just people, but now this becomes the singular focus of my life. Look down at verse number 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, ooh, wow. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any Jew during, during Jesus' day is going to know the offense of the terminology that Jesus has just used. This is, this is before Jesus has been crucified. This is before Jesus himself has hung upon a cross. Now he knows what he is going towards. He continues every day to know I am taking another step closer, closer, closer to the purpose for which I came, the cross. But when Jesus starts throwing out this kind of terminology, listen, you're going to have to bear your cross. Oh, that's repulsive to me. That kind of commitment is necessary. Jesus just says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, not before, after me, cannot be my disciple. We're not referring to the cross of a difficult marriage 
We're not referring to the cross of challenging friends. We're not referring to the cross of physical impairment. We're not referring to these these things that sometimes we say, well, that is my cross to bear. No, they would understand that this was the cross of death. I read, read a statement from a man named James Denny, which said, the man who has nothing to die for has nothing to live for, for he does not know what life is. And this is what Jesus is, is laying it out. And he, he's just laying it out in such uh, clear terms. There is a clarity, a, a focus that he wants. Every person that is, that is you know, these multitudes, can you imagine the disciples cringing when Jesus starts to publicly say, these are the terms of discipleship. That they've got these multitudes, like Jesus, our, our movement is gaining momentum. And then he turns and he says to the multitudes, it's like, Jesus, don't say it like that. But he just lays it right out there for everybody to hear. The disciple has everything to live for because he has chosen who and what he will die for. He has simply placed his life at the full disposal of his master, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus inserts what we might refer to as some mini parables. Talks about building something. If you're going to build a house, before you start to tear up the ground, before you start to do anything, he says you better know what it's going to cost you or you're going to look the fool. You're going to start something and you're not going to have the resources to bring it to its conclusion. And then he says, he uses another one. It's like, ooh, wow, I get that. Listen, if you're going to go make war with someone else, you better understand this is what war is going to cost you. Otherwise, you're going to start to provoke something and you're not going to have the means necessary to bring that whole thing to its conclusion. I'm oftentimes fascinated by by true life stories that are birthed from conflict. And so often that comes from times of war. So you start to read. I, I just finished recently a, a book about Churchill and, and uh, incredible challenges that, that he faced as prime minister. It's quite remarkable. And then, then when you start to, to get into the, the realities of war, Watching a, a war movie, reading a book on war, there's sometimes this sense of almost romanticism. Like, oh man, what would I do in that situation? But I, I assume that there's not a lot of heroic romanticism when you're in the trenches of war. And so Jesus just begins to lay it out in terms that are startling, jarring to the multitudes that hear him. There is a commitment that he lays out. This is going to be greater than people. This is the kind of commitment that has to become your prevailing priority. And then he he wraps it up by saying, this is a commitment that prevails over all your possessions. Notice again, verse number 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, He cannot be my disciple. And you can just see the apostle Peter just put his hand to his head and say, you had to say that. Great. And he can watch the look on the faces of the multitudes as as jaws begin to drop. 
Do you know how many times I am subjected in my own mind to, oh, I have to do that? Oh, seriously. Like I didn't just do that and now I got to do this and this and this. And if I were honest, all of those this and this and this is, are just those things that Jesus is laying before me as the costs of discipleship. In many ways, you might want to say, well, hey, pastor, isn't that what you signed up for? What did you sign up for? Well, I didn't really like it just like this. That's not what I asked. What did you sign up for? Well, you know, it would be a lot better in my life if my spouse would, okay. Well, if my employer would, because I don't like, I've got a better way to do something and my employer does it this way and I, listen. You know, if my college would only, because this doesn't please me very well and I wish what my college would do is, Okay, what did you sign up for? Well, I signed up for things to rotate around me a little more conveniently than they are right now. What does the phrase, take me to your leader, mean to you? Do, do you say, well, yeah, they, they got them already. You're talking to them. Or have you come to the place where you could say, but let me take you. I know exactly who my leader is. And let me take you right to him. There's only one. You know, possessions are interesting. And he, and he uses this now. It's kind of one of those, maybe even final tests. Often the things we possess turn on us. Our possessions actually become our possessors. The only way to avoid being possessed by your possessions is to sign them over to another. Then they hold no more claim on you. I don't own them. I sign them over to another. At times in, in our culture, in our world, we, we live in the most wealthy nation on the planet. We have been catered to. We have been, I, I, I know, I don't mean to diminish the hardships that people face and some facing real hardships financially right now. I know that. But I also know that in our culture, we have the tendency to be possessed by our possessions. The things that, that we're supposed to own have actually turned on us and now we are the ones owned. What is it that is laying claim to you today, right now? Are you willing to sign it over to Jesus Christ? The real question then is, do you trust him with your possessions, uh, with your future? Do you trust him with your physical, material things? Do you trust him with your livelihood, your future income? And again, the question comes down to, wow, that's a big question. And ultimately is, 
Is he trustworthy? Will he handle those things with care? Will he use those resources wisely? While the Lord is telling us to consider the cost of discipleship, he's also reminding us that the cost of neglecting discipleship is even greater. You see, he, he laid the terms out for discipleship and it's pretty costly, I know, but then he also says the cost of neglecting discipleship is more costly still. You say, well, how does he do that? In Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse number 34, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear. Can you see Jesus saying this to the multitudes? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then he leaves it to them. Our very usefulness, our reason for existence is not found within our own self. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ who himself fills us with that which is valuable. The power of commitment is not what you have the strength to say no to. It is the power of who you will say yes to. Campus Church, who will you say yes to? Sometimes Christians go throughout their life trying to say no to this, no to that. No, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. No, we don't do this. You know, we, we get so caught up in the what we don't do as Christians. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be easier, clearer, more straightforward? Instead of constantly knowing struggling with what I'm saying no to. I have to say no to this. I, I, I can't look at this and I can't be involved in this and I can't go there and I, I can't do that. I can't ingest this. No, wouldn't it be a more natural, straightforward approach to just know to whom will I say yes? And you know, if we get some clarity on to whom will I say yes to, it may answer a lot of the challenges that we have with what we will have to say no to. If I say yes to Jesus, Jesus, this, you're asking a lot. He says, I know. Do you know what this entails? Uh, more than you. But here's the invitation. He says, you can come and, and be my disciple, my learner, you can learn of me. And then as if he is reassuring us, he says, now remember, come unto me. I know the cost is real, but come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. And here's what you will find if you come and become a disciple of mine. You will actually find something that you have been searching for all your life. And it can only be found in one place. You will find rest. 
unto your souls.